Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. Record temperatures, droughts, war, COVID, bans on movement and meeting. It's been a witch's brew of events. Is nature telling us that humans have overburdened the planet? Not yet, says Amlan Roy, my guest on this episode of the podcast. Roy, who is an economist by training, is a former investment banker. He is the author of a new book called Demographics Unraveled. Despite the alarmist headlines about climate catastrophe and immigration, Roy thinks the human population could still grow to 10 billion people by mid-century from the current 8 billion. We just need to work on our education systems and the better use of technology, he says. Listen into the podcast to find out more. If you'd like to support the New Money Review podcast, you can do so on Patreon. You can find a link to our Patreon account on the homepage of our website, newmoneyreview.com. Amlan, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you please start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Uh, Good morning, Paul. Thanks for having me on your podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a macro researcher with academic training in finance and macro, spent last 23 years using research in investment bank as well as in investment management, largely servicing clients on the institutional side, which are pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, central banks, ministries of finance, as well as asset managers with client-facing research. It's largely big picture research, but I'm better known over the last two decades for having furthered macro research into the field of demographics and how it affects macro economies, asset prices, and public policy. Thank you for that introduction. I have a copy of your book, uh, Demographics Unraveled, in front of me. Uh, it's it's in, uh, subtitled How Demographics Affect and Influence Every Aspect of Economics, Finance and Policy. I found it a fascinating read. Um, one of the things said about demographics is it's the, most, the single most important factor that nobody pays attention to. What, why is that? Great question, Paul. And I have to attribute this quote to the biggest management guru of 20th century and also called the guru of all pensions gurus by Keith Ambakshir and people who are pensions experts in US. His name is Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker said demographics is the single most important factor that nobody pays attention to. But when they do pay attention, they miss the point. The second point is also very relevant. He was drawing attention to the fact that when we look at demographics, we look at a very nuanced, prejudiced view of thinking of demographics being pertinent only to age of people or youth or the number of people. Um, But demographics, actually, if you look at the etymology or the actual definition of the term, refers to people characteristics. So two people could be the same, two persons or two individuals could be the same age. And although most people would tend to think that they are similar, they could be vastly dissimilar. So let's take individual X and individual Y. One is a male, another is a uh, female. They're very different as behavioral finance and experiments show. Women decision-making is different than male decision-making. Then let's take another male uh, or female as uh, individual Z. Individual Z could be different than individual X and Y by way of background. X and Y could have grown up in a rural big city like London or Shanghai or New York or, um, or Los Angeles. And individual Z 
may have grown up in a village with only 5,000 people. So decision-making of people who grew up in largely small towns, etc., is different. What kind of a family do you come from? Are there five, six children already in the family that you grew up with? Or were you the single child? That makes a difference. Psychology talks about it. Behavioral economics and behavioral finance talks about it. Lastly, also, if you grew up not just in rural or urban areas, but your education is very different or the people you've been around are very different, then your decision making is different. I do also highlight this in a paper where I showed five oldest countries of the world, how retiring in those countries is very different. And that's why an 80-year-old in Japan is different than an 80-year-old in Sweden, Italy, Greece, or Germany, four of the other countries, because consumption is different in those countries, workers are different, education is different, institutions are different. And that's why when you look at demographics, you need to look beyond age, you need to look at consumer and worker characteristics because consumers consume the bulk of GDP and workers make up all the GDP. That's just a macroeconomic viewpoint. The investment right. viewpoint is if I make income of 100, but I consume only 70 of it, uh, then 30 that is safe is what I put towards my personal investments over time. And that's why savings, investment, consumption are all related to behavioral characteristics and not just to age. Right. So you're making the case that demographics are about more than just age uh, and population numbers. Nevertheless, in your book, I can see uh, some very nice, um, I think you call them Christmas tree uh, shapes, which show the distribution of population around the world and in, and in individual countries, showing the, 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 the number of people in different uh, age groups. And obviously, as as, as you get, uh, as, as the age group increases in age, you get uh, you know fewer and fewer people. Um, but I can see that uh, in the t if, when it comes to the world population, the, the kind of Christmas tree uh, demographic pyramid has fattened out over the last 40 years. Um, there's a chart here comparing uh, 1980 uh, age structure and, and 2020 age structure. What's been going on there? What's the reason for that? Great question, Paul, again. Um, this, they're called population pyramids, but actually they are depictions of age structure. They were called pyramids because... Typically, when people started studying age structure based on different five or 10 year age groups, they found them to look like pyramids in the 50s or 60s. So if you looked at US or Switzerland or UK or most developed countries, we have lots of young people, thanks to the baby boom in the 50s, 60s, uh, 70s. But we had far fewer old people. People would die off in their 60s or 70s with advances in sanitation, in public health and uh, with uh, also good medical and health improvements, people have started living longer. So there are far many more people at older age groups above 65, 75 and 80. In fact, in my book and in my presentations, I claim and I show that the fastest growing age group is the 80 plus age group in the world. So people miss the point because they think about all retirees above 65. But I draw distinction between the old who are between 65 to 79 and the very old who are above 80. And the fastest growth is in the 80 plus who are a larger fiscal burden on society by way of expenses, by way of care, by way of hospitals, etc. And they are not earning as that part of the population grows 
and birth rates are the second thing which are going down. Women realize that they no longer need to have five or six children uh, compared to when they were uh, having kids in agrarian societies. In urban societies, children are expensive and more children survive than did during uh, the 40s, 50s and 60s. Again, thanks to health improvements, they tend to have one, two, about three children. Even in countries where they used to have five or six children, they've started having fewer children. So fall in birth rates, increasing in, uh, increases in longevity, together combine to create something which is called increase in old age dependency ratios, which reflects the flattening of the population pyramids or the age structure distribution. Right. And the, and the rise in that old age and younger age dependency ratio is, is uh, I understood from your book that it's, it's not just a question of something happening in the uh, developed world. It's happening all around the world and, and, and in less developed economies as well. You are so right, Paul. Um, and I must focus on the fact that, yes, while European Union has one of the lowest fertility rates, 1.46 um, uh, children per woman, largely driven by fewer babies in Italy, Spain, Germany, Greece, etc. Uh, there has been increase in fertility rates in some of the richer countries like US, uh, UK, France, and also in countries in the Nordics where governments have given incentives for women to have uh, more children. Nevertheless, Two seems like a sweet spot or even one to two children in the developed countries. But the bulk of the population increase in the world happens in the emerging markets, which account for roughly about two thirds of the world's population. Depends on how you divide developed and developing. There's a little bit of a gray area. And in those parts of the world, the poorest countries like Burkina Faso, Zimbabwe, Angola, where women used to have four or five children, now they tend to have two children or maximum three. Afghanistan used to have six, seven children per woman. Even that has come down. As women get more educated, they realize that to provide a better um, prospect for children and better sources of education, because education is key and a healthy livelihood, they need to have fewer children. And this is a universal phenomenon of decreasing birth rates, not just in developed countries, but also in developing countries. So when do you expect the global population to peak, uh, both in developed and developing countries and overall? Great question. Very, very difficult to say. There are estimates where people believe that by 2050, populations will peak. But as we know, birth rates and death rates also change. So birth rates went down during this COVID crisis. Birth rates also go down lots of times when people find famines or big increases in inflation or there's a war, birth rates tend to kind of also go down, went down after 9-11. So birth rates are very important and they sometimes can get affected by temporary things like the pandemic that we've seen. So yes, there's been a drop in birth rates in the last three or four years. Also, there's been a drop in migration. When there's a drop in migration into rich countries, that tends to also affect GDP growth because a lot of these larger countries like Australia, Canada, and few other countries in the Nordics bank on certain amount of positive net immigration. That really comes under the radar when countries have to put up 
roadblocks thanks to controlling the inflows of people during the pandemic. So uh, to cut a long story short, a lot of estimates go for about 100 years in terms of population uh, forecasts. But most people think that populations will peak by around 2040, 2050. And the reason for that is Asia has already peaked in terms of birth rates. The birth rates are falling. But Africa is the only continent where birth rates and populations are still kind of increasing above replacement fertility. For replacement fertility means 2.1 children per woman. And we expect that from 2040 onwards, we will see that population growth rates in Africa also start tapering off uh, from their highs. And that's when we are likely to see world population peaking. And the peak estimates vary between 9 billion to 10 billion. There's a behavioral aspect also. The kind of supply-side shocks we are seeing today, which is causing shortages of semiconductors, shortages of commodities, shortages of food, shortage of fuel, etc., is all leading to a certain mental shock to people, the kind that we had in the 70s. And this could also affect people from having larger families. Whenever there are shocks, people try to manage their budgets tightly, and then they try to further economize on other things. And one of the economies is to not grow family sizes too much. So the peak numbers are expected to be typically between 9.5 to 10 billion. Now, many people criticize and say that the world doesn't have enough food or enough resources for that. I challenge that. I think we waste a lot of resources. I think we do not save and pay enough attention to sustainability and economizing on resources. If we were to make agriculture and manufacturing and storage more efficient in the developing countries, I do believe that the world has enough resources for 10 and a half billion people. Right. But that, 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 uh, that, that kind of debate about uh, you know, excess population causing huge problems has been around for a very long time, hasn't it? And uh, going back to Malthus, who you know, predicted famines uh, two or 250 years ago. And so you're, you're, in the, you're in the more optimistic camp. You think that humans can, can manage with a larger population of even two or three billion more than we have at the moment, as long as we manage our resources more effectively. Absolutely. And technology is going to be a big player in it. There will be transitions. Education and technology will allow people to find better ways of economizing. So, for instance, now there are smart meters on energy consumption, uh, even in the poorest of neighborhoods in Europe, if I look at inner cities. So what happens is then when people go off to work, they can manage to monitor uh, and switch off their electrics and gas a bit more easily by putting it on automatic timers and even the companies can help them. Technology can also help in terms of increasing efficiencies for people who travel very long distances. While um, there are some benefits to working from home, I do believe there have always um, also been some negatives to working from home because as human beings, we benefit a lot in business, education, etc. by socializing. And yeah. the brunt of the COVID crisis where people have been shut indoors has not just been the education losses, but it's also been older people suffering mental afflictions of not socially interacting so much. So Alzheimer's, dementia, etc., even in the poor countries, has grown by leaps and bounds over just the last three years. So too much isolation is not good for us. 
absolutely not we are social animals we need to be um, interacting and that means face-to-face interaction not just virtual interactions virtual interactions are growing and those are really good but they do not compensate for face-to-face seeing somebody meeting somebody um, giving somebody a hug so i was at a conference where people said covid stresses can be reduced by people and people could manage stresses better by hugging their loved ones or even by kind of giving a cuddle to their dog or to their cat as a pet and those are stress mechanisms that uh, um, anti-stress mechanisms that are good and we like to be in societies where human beings help each other help animals help plants help the entire ecosystem and that's why biodiversity becomes a very important part of what investors are now also focusing on. Uh, thank you, Amnon. I wanted to return to the topic of dependency ratios for a second. So you talked about um, the, the, the growing um, um, aging of the population in certain uh, countries and, and the, you know, the higher ratio of dependence on those in the working population. Now, one obvious um, solution to this would be uh, large-scale immigration to help uh, to help grow the workforce. But we've seen over the last uh, five, ten years, you know, very strong anti-immigration movements uh, and political movements in in, in many countries, you know, including Brexit and other parts of the world. Um, how can we um, address this? I mean, is it a, is it a question of people misunderstanding the benefits of immigration, or is there something else that we need to consider? Um, obviously, higher immigration also carries potential uh, burdens for existing. Uh, social systems, health systems, and so on. How do we how do we balance these competing pressures? Another terrific question, and I'm very passionate about immigration. During the asylum seeker crisis in Europe, uh, when asylum seekers were coming from Syria, etc., I did a, a paper looking at 400 years of European immigration history, and I'd like people to know, uh, presented quite widely at that time, that immigration is very very different in France than in Italy than in Germany. So even the big three of Europe differ widely in terms of what are the net benefits, how much do they spend per person to integrate an immigrant, what, how much is spent on language skills, housing, etc., and what type of immigrants are brought in, what are the flow of immigrants. So immigration is not even a very homogeneous policy within Europe, but immigration has been shown to have benefits. And my key thing is host nations are there to discuss and dictate what kind of immigration do they want. And one of the key things I've been saying for the last 24 years is different countries need to have different immigration models. There isn't a single immigration model that should uh, be used across countries, even across the Nordics. Sweden, Denmark, Finland, and Norway have shown that they've had different immigration policies at different times. But having a healthy immigration policy is important, particularly in a world where uh, countries may not have 2.1 children per woman as fertility rates in the rich countries. They may have 1.6, 1.7, 1.8 children per woman, like we see in the UK and in some other countries like Netherlands. So what do those countries do, even France? They then import to make up the deficit relative to 2.1. And you don't need to import permanent immigrants. You can import temporary immigrants depending on what skills you need, for how long, and Uh, what skills are in deficit. So I recommend that different countries should look at which age groups you do need, what type of skills do you need, 
for how long. You do not need to bring in people to make them permanent citizens, but you could bring them on work permits, which are five years or 10 years. While speaking to um, the U.S. government, I did suggest to them that America had been far too liberal on its immigration policies and uh, compared to Australia and Canada, who get immigration policies correct by looking at points-based skills, needs-based immigration policies. So at one point in time, I did connect um, the Swedish government uh, to the Canadian government and the U.S. government to the Australian government to learn from that. And I do believe all countries need to look at immigration very, very differently. In some countries, you might even need need immigrants who are of the middle age group or who are of older age group. Look at the Middle East. They are bringing in doctors and engineers from US and Canada, some of whom have retired or in semi-retirement. So different countries will need to assess what is the skills gap and try to fill it in a prudent way so that there is no domestic backlash. At the same time, there's a win-win situation with the immigrants contributing positively to the growth and welfare of a country. The host nation needs to decide this. But I want to place on record that out of population change of 100, let's say 100 is the population change in a country, then in the case of US, UK and France, as well as Canada and Australia, more than 40% of population change happens from net immigration. So population change has two components. The first component is natural population change, which is births minus deaths. So if you look at 2022 compared to 2000, on a two-year basis, we will look at how many births over two years minus how many deaths. That gives us natural population change. The second component is net immigration. That means how many people came into a country minus how many people went out. That net immigration component is 40% plus in lots of those countries which are very progressive and open like France, US, Canada, Australia, and UK. And when COVID happened, many of these countries lost. So Australia and Canada attributed roughly 1% of GDP loss thanks to immigrants not coming from skilled countries. Those countries also lost in terms of university students, just like UK and US did, because foreign student revenues contribute a sizable amount to the revenues of Oxford, Cambridge, Columbia, uh, Harvard, Yale, etc. Yeah. yeah. So you think that there's, I mean, maybe we should look beyond the headlines in the in the populist press, which are in the UK at least frequently, you know, anti, anti-immigration. And you're saying that the governments actually have, have uh, as far as you can see, they have more progressive and longer looking policies. Yeah, UK has been really good. But I would encourage them to be a lot more skills-based. So OECD, which is a think tank of developed countries in uh, France, recommends skills-based immigrations, uh, as well as we need to allow people to work longer if they live longer, part-time, part-year, part-week. This was part of a four-point agenda in my first publication called The Demographic Manifesto. It was a very radical manifesto for rich countries saying that countries should take on a mix of four policies to ensure the maximum productive benefits from old and young people in their countries. Number one, get rid of fixed retirement ages, have flexible uh, retirement ages for people to work as long as they want, whether it's Mervyn King or it's Lord Britain or others who are retired, but they're working part-time, part-week as advisors or as professors 
or as um, as guru, gurus in think tanks and foundations, all those benefits need to be captured. So older people should work longer. Second, we need to get rid of something which I fervently think is limiting the growth of all developed economies, that is the gender gap. So women are better educated than men in terms of university education in the G20. But roughly 14% less women are employed if 100 men and 100 women uh, are looking for jobs. And furthermore, women are paid 20 to 30% lower for the same job relative to men. And I'm not talking about an investment banker, a lawyer, a full professor, a doctor. I'm talking about the average man and woman. So I did a paper in which I showed that gender equality leads to higher growth, low debt, bigger sustainability, and also um, uh, leads to um, lower inequality. So there are benefits. That's the second point. Third, selective immigration. Every country should do immigration of the scale and nature that it really needs, depending on its own skills, depending on its own population and educated population literacy and systems. The last is outsourcing and offshoring. So you don't necessarily always need to bring in people. You can outsource and offshore a lot of things which are nowadays done in the white collar world, such as spreadsheets, which are run and programs which are run in Asia as well as in Latin America when Europe sleeps. So a combination of these four policies should mitigate the demographic time bomb, which alludes to the fact that we are getting a growing mass of older people growing much faster than the mass of younger people. That puts enormous burdens on countries which have to pay for lots of people. And we are currently seeing four to five generations coexist at the same time. Take yeah. somebody who's 93, has got a daughter who's 70. That daughter who's 70 has got a son who's 47. That son who's 47 has got uh, a son who's 24 with one-year-old twins. So right. five generations exist with only one generation working. That's a very big problem for countries which typically had been modeled by actuaries and by economists as having only three generations living. Thank you, Amla. Could you talk a little bit about the impact of this sort of aging uh, population trend on macroeconomic indicators like inflation, interest rates, and then the implications for asset markets, equities, bonds? You know, what, yeah. what big picture trends are you seeing? Thank you. So first thing I say, when I said that, and Peter Drucker said, demographics are misunderstood. My basic thing is, demographics is about people. People are contributing and influencing Growth today, economic growth today is affected by people as consumers and workers. Um, people are affecting inflation today depending on demand and supply. People are also affecting debt in terms of how much they've borrowed, how much governments have borrowed on their behalf, etc. So to me, if you broaden it out from age to looking at people as consumers, savers and workers, then you will find that demographics actually affects four macro determinants and the four macro determinants it affects number one is gdp growth gdp growth is affected by and it's in 73 countries i've studied gdp growth is going down in every country okay and i show in my book at least for the g uh, for six countries uh, developed countries um, which are us uk france italy germany japan they are going down because working age population growth is going down as we 
alluded earlier, the older people are increasing, people in working age population aren't growing as much, uh, and neither are people who are dependents in the 0 to 15 year age group. I did not answer your question properly earlier that you asked on dependency ratios. The old age dependency ratio is defined as people above the age of 65, 65 plus population divided by the working age population, which is 15 to 64. That's old age dependency. Child dependency is 0 to 14 divided by the people in the age range 15 to 64. So total dependency ratio in the world is increasing, but most worryingly, old age dependency, where older people cost the economies a lot, they don't contribute to um, the economy in terms of productive goals. So GDP growth is going down because working age population growth is going down, labor productivity growth is going down, and you can't work many more hours than what people are already working unless you look at countries which are forcing people to work 50, 60, 100 hours either in the private or in the public sector. And there are some governments which did that, but uh, UN as well as ILO tends to give a red mark to those countries. So growth is going down everywhere, whether you look at US, UK, France. And that's the biggest problem. When growth goes down, you have political unrest, you have crime going up, you have debt going up, and so on and so forth. The second part is inflation. Inflation goes up because of two things. Either people are demanding lots of goods and services relative to what is supplied, or relative to what is demanded, far less is being supplied. Currently, we find supply shocks, whether it's food, whether it's energy, whether it's semiconductor, and there's a rollover effect with countries becoming more and more isolationist. A little bit of supply is getting curtailed because they are not benefiting from the immigrant workforce or the skilled workforce, which was also helping them. So inflation currently has increased because of supply shocks like the 1970s, where we saw the first oil price shock in the 73 to 75 and the second oil price shock 77 to 79, 80. And that is again playing itself. And if that happens with COVID, where people are working from home, I do expect there to be a lot more productive losses. So for the instance in UK, something I predicted, their losses due to Brexit, their losses due to COVID, and then their losses due to global supply chain shocks. So that all these three together are causing squeezes in production levels. And if supply curve shifts to the left, demand curve stays the same, you get inflation. The second type of inflation is supply curve stays the same, but demand goes up. Currently, we are not seeing demand going up because incomes haven't gone up. Yes, demands have gone up in some sub-segments, you could say, for some things, uh, the kind of goods that the millennials buy, the kind of rental properties, rental cars, etc. that they go for. The third thing I want to talk about is debt. Debt is a worry. When Europe was set up and Maastricht was set up, and I used to be a professor, there were two very, very sacrosanct numbers 3% deficit to GDP was considered a prudent, manageable yardstick. And the second was 60% debt to GDP. That's what Maastricht was set up with in I the remember. late 1990s. But now, 200% debt, 264% were debt levels in, uh, in uh, three countries and three major countries. And that's also contributing a little bit to inflation because governments with such high debt cannot um, give the kind of recourse, the kind of support, the kind of subsidy 
to the rest of the population. So the three countries which had very high debt above 260% of GDP were US, China and Japan. And think where they are, the three of the largest economies of the world. So if these three economies which are supplying to the rest of the world have such high debt, then their growth tends to suffer because it's not as if you can keep growing and growing and growing and your debt can be high. 260% of debt is high. Only reason we've not called it out is because interest rates have been very, very low and close to zero or negative. Once interest rates go up, this same debt, whether an individual is holding it or a company or a nation, will come back to bite us in the backside. And we really need to be conscious. So demographics leads to fiscal unsustainability. And I've written lots of papers on it and had warned Greece about it because Pensions, healthcare, and long-term care account for roughly about 80% of the public benefits given by governments to people. So old age is very positively connected with very high debts for governments. We really need to get people, uh, companies, and individuals to save more so that they are less dependent on government uh, subsidies and government borrowing for them. Right. And you and you mentioned uh, so you mentioned uh, economic growth being uh, you know going down uh, the rate of growth is going down because of demographic pressures uh, inflation is currently going through a, a spike uh, debt levels are too high I mean are there any positives we can look out for what you know what what can we do to make things better Yes I believe if interest rates go positive and inflation is curtailed so interest rates negative or zero. I believe are unnatural and bad for the economy. And I want to be very strong in highlighting it in on your podcast and very vehemently uh, want to stress the following. If we go back to the founding fathers of economics and people nowadays forget a lot of history, but all of economics, finance and investments are based on in an economy, you have four factors of production, land, labor, capital and entrepreneurship. For land, you get paid rent. For labor, you get paid wages. For capital, you get paid interest. And for entrepreneurship, you get paid profits. This is what Adam Smith, Keynes, John Stuart Mill, all of them talked about. Now, I believe we are in a world where interest rates are mispriced and therefore capital is not getting priced properly. And a lot of it has to do with monetary policy and being a bit dysfunctional and also fiscal policy not being as potent as it was in the 70s and 80s. So if capital is not priced well, interest rates are close to zero or negative, that means I borrow from you, Paul, but when I have to pay you back, I either give you you pound notes or less than what I borrowed from you or give you pound notes which are a bit torn so you have to go to get it exchanged at the Bank of England. So zero or negative interest rates means somebody who's lent you money is not getting the proper return for it. We yeah. really need to have interest rates be positive. I'm not saying be 8, 9, 10%, but healthy level of interest rates uh, should be 2, 3, 4%. And another problem with interest rates is inverted yield curves. What that means is um, when you borrow at longer maturities of about five years or 10 years or 20 years. Uh, let's say I borrow from you at five for five years or 10 years or 20 years. I pay you a lower interest rate than when I borrow for you uh, from you for one year. That is ridiculous. Uh, 
in the past and common sense tells us there's greater uncertainty over five or 10 years than over one year. So upward sloping yield curves were something we've always been used to in traditional uh, capital markets, in traditional economics during Keynes, Adam Smith, pre-war, post-war. It's only in the last 10 years post the global financial crisis, thanks to fiscal policy absence and monetary policy doing lots of funny experiments called QE. And those experiments have been partially only successful and very differently successful in Europe than in US or uh, US, UK and Japan. Japan was the first to do QE. So I do really think that we need to pay much greater attention to interest rates and interest rates need to be positive. Seeing positive inflation, if that gives us some nominal interest rates, which are 4 5%, 6%, then that again gets us out of this inefficient monetary policy where rates were close to zero. What is the disadvantage of that? Remember, I told you, old people are growing faster. What do old people do? They save. They take their savings and they want to invest them. Will they ever invest with the government or in a government bond, which is paying them negative 0.25% or plus 2.25%? No, they'll keep it under their uh, mattress or keep it in their vault. But when they see interest rates at 3, 4, 5%, as they did in the 70s uh, and early 80s, then they're more likely to invest. So I'm not saying interest rates need to be high, but interest rates need to be sufficiently high to lure the older savers to go and invest in the market rather than keep their um, uh, keep their money under the mattress. So I do really think monetary policy where interest rates have been close to zero and QE has not been that effective in providing a fair return to savers. Right. So we need to restore the link between saving and investment through interest yeah. rates. Yeah. Amnon, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating chat. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast and I look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, and I hope I've tried to answer your questions to the best, Paul, and it's been spontaneous. You've hit all the right notes. We could have gone on a, a bit longer, but maybe we repeat it in six months I if there's enough good feedback on this. I would I like would to, to do something more specific on inflation and rates because I think people are missing out on some of these things. So maybe that's a addition too for you. Great. Look forward to it. I will definitely be on for doing that. Thank you, Paul, and thanks for being patient and inviting me. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>